All right, Revelation chapter 19, and we're going to drop down to where we left off, beginning in verse 11. And so if you will take your Bible in hand, and I'd like you to stand as we read the Word of God together. Again, Revelation chapter 19, beginning in verse 11, and we'll read through verse 16. And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And he who sat upon it is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and wages war. And his eyes are a flame of fire, and upon his head are many diadems. These are the royal crowns. So these aren't the crowns of victory after a race or an Olympic race. These are the, these are the crowns that mean royalty. And he has a name written upon him, which no one knows except himself. So we don't know what that is, but there's almost a sense of intimacy with his followers and his believers that uh, perhaps uh, we will know that name uh, in glory. And he is clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which are in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, were following him on white horses. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may smite the nations. He will rule them with a rod of iron, and he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. Verse 16, and on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Amen. You may be seated. Father in heaven, we ask now that you would just help us to just kind of grasp this amazing scene in just a few verses. Many of the titles, the descriptions that we've seen earlier in the book of Revelation and actually throughout your word, throughout the Old Testament. But Lord God, I just pray that you would make it real to us, that you would impress upon our hearts that this is, this is reality, this is future reality, this is going to happen. Father, be our teacher. We pray together in the name of the King of kings and Lord of lords, our Lord and Savior Jesus. Amen. Well, we all know... Uh, very familiar expression, I can hardly wait. We all know it. We've all said it. In fact, this is kind of the time of year as we enter into December every year where maybe we hear that expression even more in a different context. I can hardly wait. So we think it and, and we feel it when we express that. We feel it sometimes at a great depth. Sometimes we want to excitedly shout it out. We're anxious, we're, we're restless, we're eager, we're enthused, we're happy, all at the same time. Our limbs may feel tense, our, our mind may feel like it's racing, it's, it may be hard to sit still or to stand still. You've all been there at one time or another. What is it for you that you would express, I can hardly wait? Maybe you're waiting in line at the Moda Center to see your favorite band and you're, you're just full of anticipation. Maybe you're waiting for a favorite relative to pull up to your house and you're, you're staring at the window. This is somebody that you haven't seen in over five years and you're bursting with anticipation. Maybe 
You're waiting to walk down a flower petal strewn aisle to make forever vows. And you're overwhelmed with anticipation. Think about that word for a moment this morning. I want the spotlight now to just, just kind of settle there. We're going to camp there. The word anticipation. Or in its verb, verb form, anticipate. I want you for a few moments just to allow it to bounce around in your mind. How have you felt anticipation? Or how have you felt to anticipate Webster simply defines it this way, to look forward to, especially with pleasure, to expect and foresee and act in advance of, making necessary preparations. Interesting definition, isn't it? Anticipating then can become a great motivator. It can energize us. It, it can give us hope because it's, that's something to look forward to. So therefore, it, it has a real effect on what I do and the choices that I make and, and what I live for. That's that making preparations part of it. Imagine the scenario you're leaving in two weeks for a trip to Europe, a trip that you've looked forward to for a long time. It's only in two weeks. Now, are you thinking about it every day? Is there a day on the calendar that goes by two weeks away that, that you're not dealing with some kind of preparedness issue to take this trip? You're going to be gone for five weeks. Or do you wait and pack the night before? I think we know what the answer to that is, right? All that said, when... when what is then the ultimate anticipation? That's what I want you to think about this morning. So we know what anticipation is. We know what it means to anticipate. We know what it means to, I can hardly wait to look forward to something. We know how it feels. We know the scenarios that click in our personal lives. But with all that said, then what would be the ultimate, the very pinnacle of anticipation, the I can't wait to trump all others. Well, I think the scriptures, not only the scripture that we just read, but some other scriptures speak to that very thing. And I'd like to share some of those with you this morning. Paul writes at the very end of Philippians chapter 3, the last two verses, 20 and 21, these words, listen. For our citizenship is in heaven. Now he's speaking for all of us who know the Lord Jesus Christ. So we in a sense have dual citizenship. We're United States citizens or Canadian citizens or whatever you are. But you're also as a believer in Jesus. You have a more important citizenship is in heaven. And he says for our citizenship is in heaven. It's not future tense. It's right now. From which also listen to this. We eagerly wait for a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion of the power that he has even to subject all things to himself. Paul is just piling phrases on top of each other. You may need to look at that again. 
because I think he's just overwhelmed by what this means. We're eagerly waiting. That is the norm in the Christian life. If we look at Paul's words in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 7 and 8, he writes this, You know these words, I have fought the good fight, I have finished the course, I have kept the faith. In the future there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Isn't that an interesting phrase? All who have loved his appearing. Paul writes in the next book, Titus chapter 2, he writes these words beginning in verse 11, for the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and world desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age. But it doesn't end there. That all makes sense, right? It's kind of just a, a compact version of this is the Christian life, but there's more looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So that's a normal part of the Christian life. Yeah, do all this stuff. Conduct yourself in a wise way. Live for Jesus, but you're also looking for his coming. You're you're loving his coming. You're eagerly waiting and anticipating his coming. Do you see that? There's a consistency here in the scriptures. All this is now moving toward the last book in our Bibles, the book of Revelation, where we are this morning, Revelation chapter 19. Everything is moving toward this day, this event, all of history. This is it. We know, having gone verse by verse, chapter by chapter, slowly through the book of Revelation, that evil has had its day. Evil has had its brief, fleeting reign. Did you get that? Brief and fleeting. Remember, as we go back and we look at that timeline, I pointed it out two weeks ago. It's only seven and a half years. Or seven years. It's three and a half, three and a half. It's seven years totally. And then what happens? God has a set timetable. God had a set timetable before Genesis 1-1. And according to that timetable, Christ returns to fulfill his promise and set up his earthly kingdom. Can anything stop him? Can anything alter God's timetable? Can anything hold the Lord Jesus Christ back from riding from heaven on his white horse? Look again at the beginning of of verse 11 in Revelation chapter 19. John simply writes, and I saw heaven open and behold. And then he begins to describe the white horse and the rider on the white horse. Now think about that for a moment. Can you imagine that? John is is back to seeing. So he was hearing in the last chapter. Now he's back to seeing. But what would it be like to see heaven open? opened. I saw heaven opened, and then what's the next word he uses? Behold. 
we've talked about this in the, in the Greek language, that word that we translate in English, behold, is a, is a word of great intensity. It reflects amazement and awe. It has the idea of, of in, the, in the seeing aspect of behold, that your eyes are literally riveted to a scene. So what is John beholding as the heavens open up in verse 11? What does he see? Who, who is this person <clears throat> that is described in verses 11 through 16 on a white horse? Well, no doubt as we just read together and we go through the descriptive words and titles and, and names and, and character traits that we are referring to the Lord Jesus Christ returning to usher in his kingdom. Every one of John's descriptions can be found elsewhere in the scriptures referring to our conquering Savior. <clears throat> we read that Jesus is faithful and true. Those are his titles. We saw that title back in Revelation chapter 3 verse 14. We read that he has eyes that are the, the flames of fire. We read that description of Jesus in the very first chapter of Revelation, verse 14, that his robe is dipped in blood. We can go way back in the Old Testament to the amazing prophecy of a man named Isaiah in chapter 63, verse 2. We read that his name is the word of God. Where did we hear that? Anybody familiar with the first chapter of the Gospel of John knows that chapter 1, verse 1, that Jesus is described as the Word of God. He has a sharp sword coming out of his mouth. We've seen that imagery already in the book of Revelation, chapter 1, verse 16, chapter 2, in referencing to the seven churches, verse 12. He rules the nations with a rod of iron. We go all the way back to the book of Psalms, just the second Psalm, verses 8 and 9. And we have that same description of Jesus Christ. And then we have that title, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Paul has expressed that to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 15. That he is the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. John must have been floored when he saw this scene. Remember, John was one of the ones that had been there all the way through the Gospels, right? Through the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. And then he would have been one of the ones standing there. One of the disciples standing there in Acts chapter 1. What happens in Acts chapter 1 and verses 6 through 11? Jesus says goodbye, right? He says goodbye to his disciples. And what happens to him? Does he just disappear? What happens? He ascends into the heavens where they can see him no longer. And I'm sure the disciples are very confused, very upset, overwhelmed. And an angel tells them what? See the way he went? Coming back the same way. You can bank on it. That's not an exact translation. But. Right? So John was there. He was one of those disciples. He already saw Jesus leave, and now he's seeing the heavens open. You don't think this is a real thing he's seeing? This isn't a cartoon. This isn't a, a movie. John is watching the real thing play out, and here he said he's going to come back just like he left, and here he's coming back. 
Can you imagine being in that situation? Jesus coming back, not to die on the cross again. Jesus is coming back to conquer, to, to rule, to establish his holy kingdom on earth. This is it. This is the last chapter. This is where it ends. This is the, the beautiful corner now that we take a turn toward the end of the book of Revelation, chapter 19, 20, 21, and 22. We see victory. We see the end. We see the rule of Jesus. We see the new heavens and new earth. Shouldn't this also be our reaction then, like John, to be floored? To say, behold, to have our eyes riveted to the scene Here's the twist. Look again at verse 14, Revelation 19, verse 14. And the armies which are in heaven, okay, think about that phrase for a moment. What are they wearing? Clothed in fine linen, white and clean, <clears throat> were following him, him being Jesus, on what? Donkeys? What are they on? White horses, right? Well, what's all this about? Who are these people described in verse 14? Who, who is this celestial army? Are they angels? Are they some of the living creatures and, and the elders from around the, the throne that we've read about earlier in the book of Revelation? Are they some specially created heavenly fighting force? Spiritual mercenaries? Well, let's find out. I think we have a clue a couple chapters back if you just turn back to Revelation 17 and you look at verse 14. Let's see what that verse tells us. <coughs> Satan's not going to give up. There's a, there's a battle coming too. You may have heard the word Armageddon. We're going to look at that before we leave chapter 19. But Jesus is ahead of the game, remember. So we'll talk about that in just a moment. These will wage war against the Lamb. That's who they hate. All of the earth's hatred is in one direction. They hate the Lord Jesus Christ. You don't get a sense of that already today? Absolutely. You know, you can sit down. I remember I used to have uh, lunchtime Bible studies at a place that I worked at. I'd walk into the room and I'd, I'd say, we're going to talk about uh, God. Okay, God's okay, because that could be a lower, lowercase g, who knows, God. And then I'd say, we're going to talk about um, prayer. Well, prayer's okay, everybody prays. Uh, we're going to talk about the Bible. Ooh, okay, people started to, you know, get a little uncomfortable. But then when you say you're going to talk about Jesus, Jesus as the King of kings and Lord of lords. Jesus as the only way. John chapter 14, right? I am the way, the truth, and life. No one comes to the Father but by me. Boom. Half the people in the room are gone. And the other half are, you know, a little hostile. So it's Jesus. That's where everything is focused. These will wage war against the Lamb, and the Lamb will overcome them because, why? He is Lord of lords and King of kings and... Guess what? Here's a clue to who this army was. Those who are with him are the called and the chosen and the faithful. The called and the chosen and the faithful. Well, who are these? 
Well, if we go back in the scriptures, if we go back to the New Testament, we do a little bit of research and we say, well, where, that, where is that word called used? Which, by the way, in the original Greek language means there's an invitation there. So that's something you initiate. You are invited. Well, according to 2 Timothy chapter 1, the called describes those who know the Lord Jesus Christ, those who have accepted Christ, those who have been bought by the blood of the Lamb. Is that anybody in this room? Then I guess you could have the title called. So every one of you would have the title called, who know Christ this morning. Well, what's the second word that he uses? Chosen. Chosen. So in the Greek language, that means, as it you would think it would mean, to select, to, to be chosen, to be drawn to. And that word is also used throughout the New Testament. It's used in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 5. The chosen are those who... You've read Ephesians chapter 1. What's the description about in that whole beginning of that first chapter? It's you if you know Jesus Christ. How you got saved after listening to the gospel and God did all of this and God initiated all this before the world ever began. You are the chosen. So if you know Christ this morning, you can add a second title to you. Not only are you the called, so there's called over your head, there, we just added chosen, or we didn't add it, God added it. And there's one more. He says faithful. In the original language, faithful has the idea of loyalty in the context of loyalty to God, loyalty to Jesus Christ, particularly oftentimes in the New Testament in the context of persecution. Well, if you go back to the beginning of Ephesians, Back to the beginning of Colossians, a number of different letters in the New Testament, you have the description given of those whom Paul is writing to, including the designation, those who are faithful. So who are the faithful? The faithful are those who the Holy Spirit resides in, who don't cave in during persecution or hard times, and remain loyal to the Lord Jesus Christ as a true born-again believer would. So you are the called, you are the chosen, you are the faithful. Well, what does all that tell us? It tells us two important things. It's so simple, but it's profound. Number one, we will be there. What do you think of that? You look at this incredible picture in verses 11 through 16. You're there in verse 14. And number two, we can't help but be there. Now that might sound kind of silly, but there is absolute security in the Lord Jesus Christ because we're there because of him alone by his initiation. We go back to Revelation chapter 19 and we read in verse 13, what? And he is clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. His robe, so Jesus is riding this white horse. Everything's white. The, everything's clean, except for his robe. Right? Don't you get that picture? I mean, you get the scene here. The heavens opened up. 
Here comes Jesus. Here comes everybody behind him. It would be a multitude, millions of people behind him who know the Lord Jesus Christ. But Jesus has some blood on him. Now, what does that mean? Is it his blood? Okay, I want to propose that it, it, can, it can go both ways. Many people will say, well, no, it's not his blood. It's his enemy's blood. Or some people say it's his blood, not his enemy's blood. I would like to propose that it could possibly be either or both. Because remember, Jesus is coming from heaven. He hasn't been in a battle. He's coming from heaven. He's not coming up from earth and then meeting us coming from heaven. He's specifically coming from heaven. So this represents two things. Number one, we are only there by his sacrifice. Blood, the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, if, if we look at that as the shed blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, and we've had that imagery earlier throughout the book of Revelation, if not through all of the Gospels and all of the writings in the New Testament. Blood represents sacrifice. Blood represents, as I mentioned just a moment ago, one way. The only way we're on a white horse is because of his shed blood. There's no other way. Have you ever been somewhere where you had to have a, a code to get access to something? I've been in and out of hospitals a lot here lately with my dad's care and all of these different rooms. I'd watch all these healthcare workers, you know, and they'd just go up either with a card and the door would click open or it's got one of these punch key things, you know, where they just and they'd go in this secret door wherever it went. But there's no access to the general public. I could never get in one of these doors. I could shake it. I could try umpteen number combinations. I would never get in. In fact, I'd probably be escorted out by security. But we find this everywhere, right? We find it now increasingly at public restrooms, unfortunately. You go to the bathroom and, oh, man. You know, you got to know the code, so you got to go ask one of the workers. And they see you walking up there like that, and they usually just shout it out. They know, you must have this, I need to use the restroom look. <laughs> and people have these now in their homes. You know, you have to have access. Either it's, a, either it's a, something you slide across it, or you look in it, or whatever it is. There's a certain uh, code to get in. So there's, there's only one way to get in. It's the same thing with Jesus Christ. Our code would read... Your code to be able to be on that white horse, to be able to follow Jesus Christ in victory from heaven, your code would be blood. That's it. That's your access. That's your entryway. There is no other way. You can attend church every day of your life. You can sing hymns every day of your life. You can do all of these wonderful things in the name of Jesus. But if you have not been covered and forgiven under his blood... You have no access. So that's part of it. Well, what's the other part of it? The blood on his garment. The blood on his garment also represents that Jesus Christ, riding from heaven, is already victorious. So if we see the blood on his garment as also representing the blood of judgment, the blood of his enemies, but Jesus is coming directly from heaven. What is that telling you? Okay, I get pretty excited about this. I want you to get excited too. What is that telling you? He has blood on his garment. If it represents battle, 
but he's been in heaven, not on earth. What does that tell you? He's already won. He's already won. The enemy's blood, everything's taken care of. His judgment is complete. Look at verse 15. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword, so that with it he may smite the nations. He will rule them with a rod of iron, and he treads the winepress of the fear of wrath of God the Almighty. We saw all of that imagery. Uh, we see it in Isaiah 63. We see it throughout the Old Testament. We've seen it in the book of Revelation already in relation to the judgment of Babylon. He does it alone. He does it fast, and it's complete. Now, what I want you to understand, this is not a contest. So, yeah, this would make a great animated cartoon, right? The battle, the big battle of Jesus coming from heaven and all of his followers. And imagine all the fight scenes and the, the great animation you could do or a Hollywood movie or whatever. Not happening here. We need to understand this is not a contest, this is not a battle, this is not a war, this is not combat, this is not a military campaign. His word brings evil to an end. That's the sword in his mouth. The word of God is holy and perfect, and when God says it, it happens. When God says it, it is done. Go back to verse 14 again. We're clean and we're on white horses. We're not fighting Those garments are completely clean. We are rather celebrating an absolute victory. We follow behind the conquering warrior king. Notice in verse 14, there's no military fatigues. There's no grenades. There's no military-grade automatic weapons. There's no mobile rocket launchers. He does it all. Verse 15, he smites, he rules, he treads. How? How does he do it all? Verse 16. Verse 16, with one of the greatest titles in all the Bible. And don't ever forget it. Verse 16, and on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. We look back at 17 verse 14 again where we were just a few moments ago we see the same title in the middle of the verse he is lord of lords and king of kings we read throughout scripture that every knee shall bow every tongue confess that he is king that he is lord isaiah 45 romans chapter 14 philippians chapter 2 do you get the impact of that, of that name, of that title? Jesus is supremely sovereign over all and the absolute highest authority. Do we understand that? What that means? Lord, capital L, okay, of lords, lowercase l. King, capital K, of kings, lowercase k. It was really interesting. I was listening to a couple of... Uh, Conservative commentators on the radio, it just happened on, I was running an errand the other day, and, and they were all worked up, uh, worked up over some guy in Europe, and I don't remember the guy's name, but the guy that they were just saying, it was like a secrecy power thing, and this guy calls all the shots, and it was a one world government type thing, and it's amazing, the guys are just like, they're, they're out of their minds with how much power this guy has. If this guy says it, it happens, and, and people don't even really know who he is that much, but he has so much power in the, in the European Union, and, and he's just, you know, and 
They were like scared. It was a scary scene. How many people are there like that? How many Putins are there in the world? How many other world leaders and, and people behind the scenes who, who control every decision and are literally intoxicated with power? People love power, don't they? They love power. Where are they in relation to Lord of Lords and King of Kings? We need to remember that, see, because, because power looks like it's ruling all the time. And people get scared and, and wonder, oh, there's some secret conspiracy thing going on. And it's so powerful. And they're controlling the whole world. And we're going to have one world government. Yeah, there's a lot of powerful people out there. But their power is for a moment. It's for a moment. When they're dead and gone... To a Christless eternity, where is their power then? When Jesus comes back in, in Revelation chapter 19, where is that power then? What is it going to matter? What is the Antichrist power and the, and the government and all of these things that have been built up and these people are literally intoxicated, egomaniacs with power, where is it all going to be? You know what's going to happen? One sword out of one mouth is going to take care of everything. And I have a feeling it's going to be in an instant because that's how God does things. It's not going to be a battle. See, if it, if it was extended over time, then it would be a bloody battle. And it'd be like, God's winning. Oh, wait, Antichrist is winning. No, oh, God's winning. It's not going to be like that. It's not a football game. It's not a battle. He's already won. See, that's what you know. That's what I know. We read Revelation chapter 19. We know who's already won. So how should all this affect us? Well, let's get back to that word, anticipation. Anticipation. What is anticipation? It gets me excited, right? I'm looking forward to something. We don't, we're not filled with this excited anticipation for things that we dread. It's for things that we're looking forward to. And then we're, we're making the necessary preparations. Like when you're waiting for that favorite relative that you haven't seen in over oh, five years, you know, and you, you get the phone call. This happened to Lisa and I one time. We got a phone call and they said, we'll be there within the hour. You ever got a call like that? So do you just go back and sit down and, you know, just kind of take a nap and... What do you do? You're frantic, right? You run around the house. You're cleaning things up. You're making lunch. You're, you're putting on coffee. You're doing all kinds of stuff until the moment they pull up. And you're probably looking out the window, right? Of course, now they'll let you know on your cell phone or you can track them or whatever. But you would be looking out your window in anticipation. It changes the way that you live. Jesus is coming back to take us to heaven the rapture. That's going to be the first coming back. And then the second coming is right here in Revelation chapter 19. Are you going to be a part of both of those? Are you going to be part of, part of that? It's almost like in the first coming, we're going to see him from the front because we're going up. The second coming, we're going to see him from behind because we're going to be following him back to earth where he is going to set up his millennial 
kingdom reign on earth, which we'll talk about a little bit more as we get further in Revelation. So where does this put all of us? And this is where I want to close this morning. Anticipation. Anticipation. What should we be living for right now? I just had the greatest discussion in the world with my wife this morning. She's coming off a migraine. I'm, I'm all upset and down about my dad. We're putting him on hospice. It's, it's just a terrible situation. I'm confused about it. She sits down with me, holds my hand, and she said, what is this all about? You share Christ with your dad. You've got an opportunity that's absolutely incredible to share Christ with your brother who is 65 and still doesn't know Jesus. And all of us who know Christ are going to heaven anyway. We're going to heaven. It's not all here so we can say hallelujah. Revelation chapter 19 is true. Anticipation. What a difference it can make when that anticipation is built on the word of God and the truth of God. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for this incredible scene in Revelation chapter 19. Thank you, Lord, that we can go away today saying, praise the King of kings and Lord of lords. And he is my king and he is my Lord. We pray together in Jesus' name. Amen.